Well, it's time that we turn in our Bibles to the section of Scripture that we're going to consider this morning. And in the aisles are brothers and sisters with Bibles. So if you've come this morning and forgot your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible and would like one, um, you'd be helped to follow along with us. So just raise your hand, and uh, one of these uh, brothers or sisters will uh, give you a Bible. And uh, Miss Connie, pay no attention to Peter. Here's a brother right here who needs a Bible. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss Carol, Miss Miss Connie, Miss Carol. See, Peter, you got me twisted up too. As a sister there in the back, Miss Carol, uh, it needs a Bible. There we go. We're in Luke chapter 21. We're uh, sort of making our way to the last three chapters of Luke's gospel. We've been in this gospel now for a few months in a sermon series that we've called Getting to Know Jesus. And if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, that's precisely been our hope, been our aim, is that as we've looked at the Lord's life in the gospel, we would become more and more acquainted with him, who he is, what he's like, how he acts in the world, and that becoming more acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ, we might also find our love for him deepen and our fellowship with him more tender and more frequent. And so if you're visiting this, this morning, that's our hope uh, for ourselves as a congregation. It's our hope for you as you join us uh, in our time this morning in Luke chapter 21. Let me start this sermon with reference to end-of-the-world cults. There have been a number throughout the history of the world there have been a number even in more recent history, last 50 to 100 years, just to mention a couple that maybe folks in this room might remember, the, the, the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, when David Koresh led a, a cult following there, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be Christ, and um, the tragic end of that story is he led those who were following him uh, into resistance to authorities. Uh, the compound was set on fire. It appears that some took their lives. Others, following this false messiah, lost their lives. Uh, maybe if you're my age or younger, in your parents' generation, they will remember Jonestown and the cult led by Jim Jones. That compound of people in South America, I believe it was, Guyana, I think, um, eventually were led to drink uh, poison lace Kool-Aid. And so we sometimes jokingly say that someone shouldn't drink the Kool-Aid or someone has drunk the Kool-Aid, but that's attached to a rather tragic incident in religious history. And scores of people lost their lives in that tragedy. You know, such cults thrive because there is, I think, an instinctive fascination with the end times with the end of the world, how it will come, if it will come. And it's not just cult groups. I mean, you see sometimes kind of lone rangers. You imagine the guy, maybe you've seen him on television with the sandwich board standing outside downtown and on the sandwich board, something like the end of the world is near. And, you know, it seems like whenever they're on television shows, they've got wild hair and wild eyes. And, and you look at this guy and you're thinking, you're, you're suggested to you that you should think that this person is out of touch with reality. Maybe they are. But the question or the concern seems to be pretty widespread, even among those of us who think we're on most days saying. Most days. 
So these movements can make a person think that only crazy people and cult groups think about the end of the world, but actually wondering about the end is a perfectly natural thing. I mean, we know that our lives will end, won't they? And we know that the lives of those we love will end. We've just been praying for our brother Jahil. We hope to continue to pray for him and to mourn with him and his family as they mourn. He did not wake Saturday morning expecting to hear the news of his father's passing. And he wrote an email to me and said, I long for this world to be over. He wrote that not merely out of mourning, but that's what you see, out of hope as well. And we see aspects of the world and the society, wars and nuclear weapons that really do have potential for ending life as we know it. So it's natural to wonder, when will the end come and what will it be like? And if we're spiritually minded, it's natural to wonder, well, what does God think about these things? If God had a sandwich board and was standing on the sidewalk, what would it read? And if such an end is to come, how do we prepare for the end of everything as we know it? In many respects, that's what this text is about this morning. The end of the world and the events of the end and how we should prepare. Let me set it up in terms of context. Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. He has been teaching in the temple every day. And every day he has been teaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the message about himself and the message about salvation. And he has had confrontation with religious leaders along the way who have been opposing him. He's finally silenced them. Stays before his crucifixion. And he's given, it seems, all of his energy to doing this one essential thing, teaching his disciples the truth so that they might be strengthened by the truth And they might endure until the end comes. And in this chapter, the end and all of the events of the end come zooming to the fore for us. Look with me at Luke chapter 21. As I read this chapter, let me invite you to sort of ask yourself this question. What's the key word in this chapter? We can answer that several ways. But as you listen, as you follow along, think to yourself, what, what might I say is the key word or key phrase? In this chapter, Luke 21, beginning in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, 
Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. The Lord bless the reading of his word. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to sort of hang our thoughts on three points this morning. If you're taking notes, point number one is we want to see the events leading to the end of the world. We want to see that they are certain. That they are certain. Point number two, we want to see that the timing or the sequence of these events is likewise certain. There's a definite order to these events. And finally, if these things are certain, how can we be certain that we're ready for the end? How can we be certain that we're ready for the end? 
And so what I want to do with this text is think about the events, think about their sequence, and then I think there are applications in the text itself to ready us for that day. All right? So let's think about the events. The events that lead up to the end of the world, in Jesus' mind, are certain. Oh, what you sort of highlighted or thought of as the key word in the chapter, as I said, you could, you could circle a number of them, but there's one word in particular that's almost invisible that I think in some ways is, is really the fulcrum. And that's the little word will, W-I-L-L. Did you notice it? It's, it's mentioned there almost 30 times. Over and over and over again, the Lord says these things will happen. These things must happen. The Lord Jesus is certain that there is a day coming when the world as we know it will come to its end. And that little word will is not only sort of pointing to that future reference, but when you use it with the kind of stress, with the kind of adamant that Jesus uses here, it carries with it this notion of certainty. We may be sure according to Jesus that the world as we know it does have an appointed day when it will be wrapped up. Now, the disciples prompted this discussion in verse 5. They were looking and admiring the temple as, oh, this, this place is so beautifully adorned, so wonderfully decorated. Look at it. And the Lord Jesus responds to them. Did you see it there in verse 6? He says, essentially, everything that you see, well, there are days that will come when there will be left here not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's prophesying here the, the, the utter destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Now that temple had been destroyed earlier in, in Jerusalem's history, but it had been rebuilt. And it had be, it become, as it was before, um, the sort of center of Jewish religious life and Jewish worship. The temple was the place wherein God was thought to dwell among his people. And in many respects, there is no calamity, there's no catastrophe to a faithful Jewish person like the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus prophesies that not one stone will be left on another. And I think the disciples are thinking, how could this be again? They're thinking with great concern that this will surely be the end. And so they ask him two questions in that next verse. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things take place? Well, we want to think about the what part of that question in this first point. And if you want to, you can organize really what follows in this chapter into three sort of broad sections. There are, in answer to that what question, there are some, some personal answers to that question. In other words, answers that apply to Jesus' disciples. There are some local answers to that question answers that apply to Jerusalem's destruction. And there are some cosmic answers to that question. Things that talk about the general distress of the world when the end comes. Notice the, the list of things that Jesus gives his disciples as personal answers to that what question, what will be the signs. Verse 8, the Lord speaks there and he says, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Christ here prophesies that the first sign will be the coming of false Christ, the coming of false teachers. And they will say what David Koresh said, I am he. 
And he says here very plainly, among all of the kind of signs that he's going to give us in this text, this is the one that comes with a warning. This is the one where he says, do not listen to them, avoid them, stay away from them. For those false teachers and those false Christs would abound right there in the early church. They would come right there at the church's infancy, and they have dwelled among the church and in the world since the days of Christ himself. And so here, Jesus does not commend a liberal attitude toward teachers. He does not recommend listen to anybody who says they come in his name or they're him. He commends discernment. He commends carefulness. He commends an attitude of discrimination, knowing that he alone is Christ, and he has told us what these things will entail. And he's concerned that we not be like dumb sheep led astray, but that we be like listening saints, keeping close to him. The first sign he gives us in verse 8 are these false teachers and antichrists. Verse 9, wars and rumors of wars. He says that the sign of the, of the coming in will be this speculation about war and rumors about war and, and tumults everywhere. But not only that, verse 11, there will be natural disasters. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Paul says in Romans 8 that the entire creation is groaning, awaiting the adoption of sons. Jesus here is talking very much about a similar kind of thing, only in reference to the coming of the end, that that the entire creation will be shaking and quaking and and there'll be tremors and terror in the skies, famines and pestilences. Number four is there in verse 12. There'll be persecution. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. For my namesake. For identifying with Christ. There will be the outbreak against Jesus' disciples of persecution, of fierce persecution, of state-sanctioned backlash and oppression and suppression of the church. Notice number five, verse 16. There'll be betrayal and martyrdom. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. The coming of the end will be marked by the breaking of natural affection. It'll be marked by the breaking of bonds, familial bonds. It'll be marked by the breaking of friendship. All again because of his namesake. And those who love his name will be given over to those who don't. And those who don't will jail and beat and persecute and even kill those who do. And isn't this the truth of all of Jesus' apostles? All but one was martyred. The one who wasn't martyred was imprisoned in Patmos until the end of his life. And it is true, this is exactly what we see in the opening chapter of Acts. When the gospel begins to preach, be preached and the church begins to grow, what happens? A man named Saul and many religious people, they, they lead this outbreak of persecution against the church. And then you think of the secular authorities, 
that would come up in the generation following this, the Neros and others who burned Christians in their gardens for entertainment. The Lord says this is part of the end. Verse 17, and a general hatred toward Christians. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. It may feel a weird thing to us to know a name so beautiful and so loving and so generous and to love that name and at the same time be hated because of it. Here the Lord entertains no notion that Christians are going to become popular. Not at the end. Not in the in-between. And so, beloved, if we are Christians and we are faithful to Christ, I think the Lord would remove from us the notion that we should be seeking the world's approval. It's precisely because of his name that we are hated. In some ways, it has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with the one that we love and that the world rejects. That name which we sing of and which we celebrate, which is so precious to us, which we, which we would in our best moments like to give our lives for. That name by which we know that we are saved and, and that name which speaks of love to us. Well, you do realize, beloved, that for most of the living world, that name is reviled. That name is rejected. That name is marginalized. If you come in that name, the Lord teaches us in the gospel, we can't expect that they would love us and hate him. No, if they hated him, they will hate us too. So don't let your soul be troubled when you reject it because of the name. Don't, don't act as Peter says and James says as though something surprising is happening. It's what they did to the Lord. And if we are rejected for that name, it's an honor, isn't it? And so for his disciples, he lays out these six things that will be signs, markers of the, of the coming in. But notice also he speaks also of Jerusalem. The question was asked about the temple. He says the temple's going to be torn down. The question is, in its most immediate sense, about the temple itself and about Jerusalem itself. And he tells us there that there are signs related to that as well. Look in verse 20. The first is they're going to be surrounded by their enemies. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And not only will they be surrounded, but they will be defeated. So you look in verse 24, there's going to be death and captivity. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. It's so bad. Verse 23, the Lord speaks of this woe. He says, woe or alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Now, see Jesus' heart here. I think most of us, when we talk about prophecy and we talk about the end times, you know, some people break out their charts and their graphs and their pictures, and then you start debating all the intricacies of what does it really mean that there's something called a, 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 an animal with a lion's head and a scorpion's body and a horse's whatever, you know, not how Jesus discusses prophecy. You see, when he talks about Jerusalem's fall, he goes to pregnant women and infants. We recognize that the consequence of war is what some people call collateral damage. 
That's just a euphemism for non-combatants being killed. And Jesus says at the edge of the sword, Jerusalem, Israel, Jews will be put to death. And woe to pregnant women and woe to nursing mothers and woe to little babies. I mean, you get the sense that if Jesus was moderating one of our political debates, he wouldn't be asking folks about their doctrine of war. He'd be asking folks about the pictures of babies dying, fleeing their country where war is. He'd be asking about the pregnant women and the mothers and the many folks who are killed. Because the end brings this terrible woe, not just upon Jerusalem, but as we'll see, upon the whole of the world. I mean, when you think about the end of the world, do you, does your heart break for those who will be caught up in that end? That's what's happening with our Lord right here. He's not giving some sermon, again, parsing some fine theological points. He's giving a sermon that's applied to our lives. And he weeps over Jerusalem. That next section, you'll see he gives sort of some signs to be looking for that have to do not just with Jerusalem locally, but have to do with the entire world globally. So verse 25, signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. You see there in verse 25, also the sea and the waves roaring. He's using apocalyptic language. He's using the, the, the imagery of, of, of apocalyptic literature to, to signify this devastating end. It's as though the heavens were shaken. And you see how the nations respond, verse 26? They're perplexed because of the roaring seas. And not to sort of try and strictly apply this to our current debates, but... What do you think debates about global warming are about? It's perplexity about what's happening with seas and what's happening with the earth. And notice here, people were fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. This is how people with no hope must inevitably respond to the destruction of the world. Fear and foreboding. Jesus says, these things will happen. And the question is, when? And throughout the chapter, the Lord gives us a, a sequence of these events, doesn't it? This is not a, a prediction of when. He doesn't give us a date. The Lord himself would say elsewhere that no man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man returns. Only the Father in heaven who has closed up that knowledge in himself. But he tells us here with, with certainty that they will happen. And he gives us a sense of the sequence of things. Now, he's not being exhaustive about the things that will happen at the end. But he is being, I think, perfectly accurate about the things that will happen in the end. And he tells us the order of them. So the first thing that is to happen in these events, notice in verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. For these things, notice, must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So this false teachers and the, the, the rumors of war and so on, these things must happen and they first take place. Yet these are not the end. Because in God's mind, in God's agenda, the end is spread out apparently over some time. It will not be at once. Indeed, some of what's said in this chapter refers to Jesus' immediate audience. They are fulfilled in their lifetime. So look at verse 32. 
Jesus says there, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. He was referring there especially to the persecution of the disciples and the destruction of the temple. All of that did happen in that generation. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD when Rome surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem. But other parts of this refer to the very end of the world. So in verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The second coming has not yet happened. We still await the Lord's return. The things do not happen all at once. They are spread out from the day the Lord spoke these words until our very day and on until the end itself. But first are the false teachers. And first are the rumors. Notice secondly, the persecution. Verses 10 to 12 again speak to those things. You got the wars, the rumors of wars, the the famines and so on. But verse 12, but before all this, before the wars, before the famine, before the pestilences, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Second then was the persecution. Third is the destruction of Jerusalem, which we looked at in verses 20 to 24. That begins, verse 24, the time of the Gentiles. Do you see that there? That begins what's called the times of the Gentiles. That's when the Gentiles will occupy Jerusalem, as they do to this day, and when the Gentiles will be used by God as a judgment upon Israel for their unfaithfulness, for rejecting their Messiah. So verse 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So all that's happening in Jerusalem is a matter of fulfilling biblical prophecy. God had foreordained these these times. He had ordained that for a period Israel would be broken off and Gentiles would be grafted in. That's the third notion of the times of the Gentiles. The period where those who were not Israel, those who are not Jews, are brought into the kingdom of God by the preaching of the gospel. And we see that begin almost from that moment. Gentiles are brought into the kingdom as God has purpose ever since he promised to Abraham to make him a great nation. Then you get the wars and rumors of wars continuing, verses 25 and 26. Near the end, you get the cosmic distress. And then finally, you get the second coming in verses 27 and 28. See there how the Lord describes it. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's the sequence. You don't need any more than that. That's enough to occupy our imagination. That's enough to be concerned with. But now what we really want to see is not just the listing of the events and not even some sense of the timing. What we really want to see for the bulk of our time is Jesus' pastoral use of these truths. We want to answer the question, so what? Why does this matter? Why should we be concerned with this? How does this help us? How does this ready us for the day of the coming of the Lord? And I want to give you one, two, three, four, five, six, eight things. (laughs) Peter always gives me a hard time when I say I got three points and then I give you eight sub points. He's like, brother, you know that's an 11-point sermon, don't you? (laughs) So this is sermon number two, eight points. 
how we can be ready or certain for the end. Number one, give it all. Give it all. Give it all. Verses one to four. You remember how this started? Verse one, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I just, I told you earlier when we started the series, one of the reasons why I love the gospel of Luke is Luke's fondness for women. And how often Luke and the heroes, the heroes and the stories that Luke tell are the women in the chapter. And so he contrasts in verses 1 to 4, all of these rich persons going forward, making their offering. And they are making their offering, as he says there, really out of their abundance. In other words, it's no sacrifice to them. They can appear generous before those who are watching because they have it to be generous with. But now Jesus, in the other gospel writers, tells us, kind of positioned himself to see this widow, this poor woman with no husband, no children, no means of income. And he watches this widow, it seems, with a certain kind of intentionality as she goes and she puts her offering in the box. She has two coins. She drops both those coins into the offering box. And I love the way Randy Alcorn in his book, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, kind of meditates on this. He sort of freezes the frame and he says, now ask yourself if this woman had come and asked you, hey, look, I only have two coins Should I give this an offering or should I buy bread to eat? And he says, now what would your counsel be? Don't raise your hands, but the first time I read it, I thought, oh man, he got me. Because my counsel might have been something like this. Well, maybe the Lord gave you those two coins to get the bread. And the Lord certainly knows what you have and don't have. I wouldn't judge you, judge you harshly. But when Jesus sees this woman put her two coins freely into this offering, he says in another gospel, what this woman has done will be remembered until the end of the age. And what she has done here in giving more than she had, in fact, giving all that she had, was a great demonstration of her self-giving to God. She was surrendering it all. We sing that all the time. I surrender all. Where here's a picture in the Bible of a widow, poor, doing exactly that. Giving all that she had to the Lord. It was an act of great faith. For if he had indeed provided those two copper coins, he could provide her 2,000 copper coins or 20,000 copper coins. What's always most vital is that we be given over to God himself to trust him. And this is what the gospel demands. The the call of Christ upon the world is to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from the world, to turn away from self-reliance, and to turn away from sin. And in all of that repentance, to turn to God, trusting ourselves to him, giving ourselves over to him, surrendering ourselves to him, acknowledging that he has purchased our lives with the blood of his son. He has sacrificed his son in our place for our redemption. Now our lives belong to him, and it's to be a constant giving over to him, a constant giving all to him as an act of continuing faith and surrender to our Lord. You see, if we would follow Jesus, we really must forget everything else as a source of security, as a source of provision. We really must forget everything else 
as a kind of Lord. Christ is Lord. And that is all. And we give ourselves over to him. If we would be ready for his coming, we must be his. And to be his, we have to die to ourselves and believe in him. But notice the second thing. The second thing we need to do in order to be ready is to not be fooled. We won't say much more about that. That's there in verses 8 and 9, again, where he's talking about the false teachers. He says, don't be fooled. Don't be led astray. Don't listen to those folks. And so here's the question in the form of application. Who do you listen to? Who has your hearing? To whom do you give an ear? On your iPod, on your iPad, in your podcasts, when you're watching spiritual programming on television, in conversation, in your reading selections, are you reading persons who point you to Christ alone as the Lord and point you to the hope of his coming? Are you giving yourself over to persons who muddy the gospel, who confuse Christ's lordship, and who distract you? Let me, let me just suggest to you, beloved, without spending time naming a lot of names, which we could do, that most of even religious programming, I think, fails to meet this test. This whole chapter presumes that what we are looking for, what we are longing for, what we are waiting for is what Paul calls the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what he describes as our blessed hope. And so much of religious teaching and so much of religious programming tells us that to be heavenly-minded is to be no earthly good. And Jesus here is telling us, no, the only way to be earthly prepared is to be heavenly-minded, is to be looking for my coming and being undistracted with the counterfeits, being undeterred and, and unswayed by the falsehood that's out there, even the falsehood of teaching that lowers your eyes and causes you to fasten your heart on this world. If we know nothing else from this chapter, it's that this world and all that's in it is passing away. But that world and the Christ who's in it is forever. And so Paul writes in Colossians 3, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and look there and long for him to stand and then come. That's our hope, is that our lives are longer than this world. Our lives stretch into eternity with Christ and the Father. So don't be fooled. Don't be afraid. When you hear the wars and the rumors of wars and the tumults, nod with certainty that your Lord told you that this would happen. Nod with certainty that this is all according to God's plan. Do not tremble at the news. Do not tremble at Fox. Do not tremble at MSNBC. Do not tremble at your local stations. Do not tremble at the reports of the things that are happening in our neighborhood as though something is happening that caught God off guard. He predicted it centuries ago so that we would not be afraid, but that we would fasten our hearts on him. Number one, give it all. Number two, don't be fooled. Number three, keep witnessing. Keep witnessing. Notice again in that paragraph in verses, verse 10 down to verse 19. 
We get that long list of things that are going to happen, natural disasters, wars, persecutions, and so on. And it's a rather depressing list, isn't it? Until you come to verse 13 and you find these surprising words. At least I was surprised. He says there are going to be wars, rumors of wars. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be put on trial. Um, All of this for my name's sake. Then he says in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. How often when we pray for opportunities to share the gospel with someone, do we think that's going to look like persecution and trials? Right? If you're like me, I, I ain't trying to put y'all on blast. This is, the Lord's adjusting my heart too. When, I, when I'm praying for those opportunities, often I'm praying for the easy button. I'm praying for the big red button that when I'm at the cookout tomorrow with my family for the 4th of July or I'm on the train making the trip downtown to meet Andrew for lunch or uh, I'm, I'm just out in the neighborhood, um, you know, doing whatever you do in the neighborhood. I'm praying that when I talk with my neighbor or that person on the train or when I get with my Uncle Boo Boo and them, you know, that, that the Lord's going to orchestrate the conversation in such a way that it's like, pat out. Now share the gospel. Go put it right in my lap. And all I have to say is Jesus died for your sins and there's a revival at the cookout. (laughs) That'd be nice. That'd be nice. But what this text says is you're going to go to the cookout looking for a cheeseburger. Ain't going to be no cheese. You got... You got there late, ain't no buns, so you trying to get some white bread to make your little burger, but it's a greasy burger, so the bread is soaked through with grease, and, and, and it's the last one, and that one looked burnt. Everybody done passed over it, right? And <laughs> it ate all Aunt Mimi's tater salad, tater salad gone, you know, and you there, and the, the, the fireworks done got wet, and, and somehow in all of that, you want to talk about Jesus. Everybody mad now, even before you got there. <laughs> But you won't talk about Jesus. And, and they, they start busting your grill, right? They don't want to hear. Oh, here you go, preacher, preacher. When are you going to get your church, you know? And they just, they just on. They ain't trying to hear. They ain't trying to hear, right? And because before you came, they were sipping on gin and juice, right? And so now, now you done came, and, and you're just messing up the party, right? Oh, it's going to be like that when you pray for an opportunity to witness. More often than not, Beloved, we're salmon swimming upstream. You know, the whole current of this chapter is against us. We're making our way through those swift waters of cultural opposition in order to get home. And along the way, we've got to convince some fish to turn around and swim with us. Right? He says, this will be your opportunity to witness. Blows my mind. Says to the disciples, in fact, don't even think about what you're going to say. I will give you words to say in that time. By the power of my spirit, I will witness through you. And guess what? I'll give you the kind of wisdom that your enemies can't even stand against. What a remarkable promise. What a wonderful word. And then when you look at the last couple of verses in that paragraph, did you see what he said there? Now, he just said you're going to be arrested and persecuted. Some of you will be betrayed by your family, and some of y'all will be put to death. But he says in the same context, not a hair will be harmed on your head. How do you hold that together? How do you hold together persecution, betrayal, and death, and yet not a hair will be harmed on your head? It's because, beloved, your life is eternal. The losing of this life is the passing into glory. 
the promises of God are not bound to this world. They're not even primarily about this world. Beloved, what God has given you in Christ cannot be taken by this world. That includes your life. And so it may very well be the case that you and I are sold out in some persecution and this country which lauds its promise of freedom may turn against Christians and persecute Christians and leave no room for Christians and all of us round it up and herd it up as if to some concentration camp where we will be snuffed out. That may very well happen and happen more quickly than any of us can imagine. But verses 18 and 19, not a hair of your head will perish and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Isn't this another way of saying this? That if you lose your life, you will gain it. But if you try to keep your life, you will lose it. It's the counterintuitive power of the gospel and the kingdom. Oh yeah, we may be persecuted and we may even be put to death, but we won't be harmed. Not really. And if we keep witnessing until the end, if we persevere in faith, oh, beloved, verse 19 is so beautiful. We gain, we gain, we gain, we gain our lives. We lay hold to that life which is life indeed. So, beloved, give it all for Christ. Don't be fooled. Keep on witnessing And number four, trust God's word. Trust God's word throughout all of this. This is what Jesus is doing when he zeroes in in verse 22 and he makes that reference to the scripture. He says, listen, all of this calamity is going to be happening and happening to you and happening around you. But verse 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. All that God has said will come to pass. Not one word of his word will fall unaccomplished, unfulfilled. All of it will come to pass. And this is what Jesus will say a little bit later in the chapter when he says uh, around, y'all know where it's at, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Beloved, what you hold in your hand is the sure, standing, enduring, never failing, never erring word of God. You want to be ready for the end? Stake your life on this book. Stake your life on what's in here. In fact, hide it in your heart. Hide it in your heart that we might not sin against God. Stand upon it as the one sure foundation. Hold it above your head as the exercise of Christ's lordship and rulership. And and hold it out front as your guide. It will be a a lamp to your feet, a, a light unto your path. If you would want to live well until Christ comes, live by this book. Just as Christ did. All that he says here is the fulfillment of what he said before would happen. You would not be surprised and let us drink deeply from the book. Trust God's word. Go to it every morning. Did you see there in the last verse of the chapter? Early in the morning, Jesus would go to temple and teach, and the people would come in crowds to hear him. We don't have Christ going to a temple to teach, and we don't have a temple to go to to hear him. But we have a Bible to open. And he teaches us here. And we can go early in the morning, every morning, to meet with him in the the temple of our own bodies and our own spirit and learn from him.
Let's be about doing that until he comes. Number five, we alluded to this already. Look for his coming. Verses 27 and 28. That's what the Savior says there. Again, the nations are perplexed. The signs are in the stars and in the moon and the seas and waves are roaring and they are fainting with fear and foreboding about what is coming for the world. They think the powers of the heavens have been shaken and they will see the Son of Man, verse 27, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And for them that will be fearsome. But for us, verse 28, notice there. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. As my brother Stephen Harris would say, you missed your place to shout right there. <laughs> oh, we've been bent too in the calamities and the turmoils. That affects us. This is why verse 28 first says, straighten up. Get the sense that he's, he's lifting us beneath the burden and the weight of all that will be happening as the world spirals toward its end. And then he says, lift your heads. And you think of the psalmist, David, so often saying, I look to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. And he says, now when you see all these things happening, you straighten up and you lift your head because unlike the perplexity of the nations, unlike the fear and the foreboding that the nations of unbelievers will feel, you look up and you look near because your redemption is drawing close. All these tremblings, all these earthquakes, all of these signs and the stars and the moons and the skies, the roaring of seas, the flashing of tsunamis, the, the flooding of Texas and all the things we see on the news, you look up. You look away from that and you look up because your redemption is close at hand. All that you hope for in freedom from all of that is close at hand. It's coming fast. It's drawing near. You see, we get to live through tragedy like people who know there's something better on the other side. We get to live through suffering like people who know that this is just a sort of taking off of dirty clothes in order to be robed in the perfect, brilliant, righteous robes of Christ for all eternity. See, we're people who know that even if we don't quite manage to straighten up and to raise our heads, Revelation 21 tells us, and in his kingdom, with his own hands, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He himself will be the lifter of our heads. He himself will straighten us when we feel we can't be straightened. So good is God. So gracious is Christ. Look up, beloved. Your redemption is near. Number six, recognize the signs. in his presence. And so let us watch and pray. Finally, I've alluded to this already. We'll say it quickly and close. Verses 37 and 38. Keep listening to Jesus. Keep listening to Jesus. He keeps teaching in the temple and the people keep coming. He keeps teaching today by his word and his spirit. And we're meant to keep listening. Give attention to God's word. 
listen to your Lord. You'll be ready when he comes. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, might I say all this applies to you? That this is the life that Christ now calls you into. This very life of, first of all, giving all to him. That means repenting of your sins and trusting in him and declaring that you are no longer in charge of your life, but that Christ is your Lord. That means he is your ruler and he is your God. Worship him. Serve him. Give it all to him. He will give you a new and eternal life. And he will call you with that life to follow him until the very end. And you will be called to witness to him, to tell others about him even in the face of persecution. And you'll be called to trust his word, which you will discover is harder than maybe you can imagine right now. Every Christian here can tell you we've had seasons where trusting God's promise has been difficult, but it's been right. It's been far better than trusting ourselves. And he will call you to live not for what you may see in this life, but to live for what you will see when he comes in his power and his glory. He will give you a hope beyond this world. Trust him. Follow him. Put your faith in him. Confess your sins. Accept that when he died on the cross, he paid the price for your sins. And when he rose from the grave, he rose for your righteousness. And believe that he's coming again. And wait for him with hope. That hope will not be disappointed. That wait will not be unrewarded. When Christ comes, you will see that he is everything. Everything. Trust him and follow him. Let's pray together. Well, we do pray this morning as you instructed us in your word. We pray this morning that you would grant us strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and that you would grant us grace to stand before you in your glory. We pray with your church, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Bring these things to pass as you have promised that they will happen, but especially bring to pass our redemption. Teach us to see that our redemption draws near. Teach us to long for that place in your glory. Encourage those who are flagging in hope. Strengthen those who are weakened in spirit. Preserve those who have been attacked in body. Oh Lord, we think about your church in China and your church in the Middle East, your church in India, so often persecuted and harassed, you have not forsaken them. Oh Lord, you will bring them into your glory. Strengthen them with this hope. And grant, O oh Lord, that we would use our freedoms in a way that advances your kingdom. Lord, we give you our all. In Jesus' name, amen.